So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to uh, Psalm chapter, Psalms chapter 25. We are going to, uh, to, to begin there today and, and, uh, and talk about, uh, we've been talking about the Reformers, and today we're going to talk about uh, William Kindle. So fortunately, we live in the United States of America, and that has afforded us some great uh, freedoms and advantages that many people in other parts of the world have traditionally not been given. In fact, in this coming week, a week from this coming Thursday, we're going to have a day of celebration where we celebrate uh, the, the, the blessings that we've been, been uh, honored with as we celebrate Thanksgiving, the national holiday. So I think it's crucial that we don't forget that the liberties that we cherish, the things that we have, uh, they came at a high price. And Pastor Nick talked about that earlier as, as, as uh, servicemen and women who've given their lives in the armed forces have, have given their lives for us. But, but there have been other types of sacrifices made so that we can enjoy this, the, the freedoms that we have today. And today, this morning, we're going to um, talk about a man who was so convicted by his beliefs that he ultimately paid the highest price so that we could have in our possession something that is so valuable and familiar to our spiritual walk that, uh, that sometimes we take it for granted. So let me try to explain to you or, or paint for you a picture of what it was like in, um, in Europe and in England in the 16th, early part of the 16th century, which is the time of the Reformers, which we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Uh, England, it, the, the, the country of England was, uh, was covered in spiritual darkness. The church remained shrouded in, 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 I'm sorry, in ignorance and in deception. Although there were 2, 20, over 20,000 priests that were in the nation of England, it was said that they could not so much as translate into English a simple uh, phrase or clause from the Lord's Prayer. The clergy were so bogged down in the mire of religious superstition uh, that they um, were not able to even have copies of the Bible. The only copies of, of the English Bible were some hand copies, uh, uh, translated copies of the, the Wycliffe Bible. Uh, the only English scriptures were just a few of these that were translated not from the original Greek and Hebrew of the, of the Old Testament, the New Testament, but rather from uh, the Latin Vulgate. That was a, a, a translation at the time. And they were secretly distributed. They were banned books. And if you were caught to have one, uh, you could be in serious trouble. Teaching from the Bible was uh, unlawful, and it was a, a crime worthy sometimes of being put to death. But in this dark hour, in this uh, a bleak situation we see in, in, uh, in England at the time, God raised up William Tyndall, who was a remarkable individual who possessed an extra extraordinary linguistic skills combined with an unwavering devotion to the Bible. His contributions to the Reformation and the advancement of Christianity is noteworthy. We're going to talk about those things today. And as we examine the life of William Tyndale, I want to look at Psalm 25, verses uh, 4 and 5. It says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So a very important question that uh, William Tyndale posed that, uh, that he, he tried to, uh, to seek his life to answer was kind of based on the scripture. How are we to know the things of God if, we don't have a, if we're not able to read the Bible in a language that, is, that we can understand? Critical question that he addressed was how can we know the ways of God and learn his truths if we do not have access to the word of God, if we can't understand what the Bible is saying? During the 16th century, having a Bible in the language that you could read and write uh, was a completely foreign concept. Bibles were available primarily in Latin. Church services were held in Latin. Uh, however, few people 
um, unless you were the most educated at that time, knew anything about the Latin language. Tyndale concluded that if scriptures contained the eternal truths of God for all people, then they should be made available in ways where people could understand. It only made sense to him. Uh, and so he, uh, he made the statement that Christ desires his mysteries to be published abroad as widely as possible. I would that the Gospels, and particularly the Gospels and the Epistles of Paul, were translated into all languages of all Christian people, that they might read and be made known. Therefore, Tyndall set out to provide an English translation of the Bible based on the original Hebrew and the original Greek uh, that the Bible was, was, was originally, the original languages of Scripture. Uh, William Tyndale was born in October of 1494 in Gloucestershire. Uh, early on, he discovered that he had a, a great ability for languages. So he pursued his passion at Oxford, where he was a gifted linguist, and he became fluent in several languages, among those French, Italian, Hebrew, Latin, Greek, German, Spanish, in addition to his native tongue, which was English. After, after graduating from Oxford, uh, he went on to study theology at Cambridge, and he became anointed as a priest. It was during this time that William Tyndale became disillusioned uh, with the church and its unbiblical theology. He said um, that they have ordained that no man shall look on the scriptures until he be nozzled in heathen learning eight or nine years, armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of Scripture. It was so appalling to him that, uh, that what he was studying, what he was learning um, in, in, uh, uh, at, at Cambridge, that, uh, that it, wasn't, it wasn't being due justice to the truth of Scripture. Uh, and what was being taught in, uh, um, on every Sunday morning was different than what was revealed in uh, the Bible. And of course, nobody could do anything about it because nobody could understand the Bible in the language that it was being, being preached and being taught. He was also troubled by the corruption of the priesthood and what he found out uh, that other ministers were doing, how they were fathering uh, illegitimate children, how they had their enemies uh, murdered and taken care of, and basically they taught one thing and did something else. So as he began to seek direction, uh, Tyndall came across the writings of the reformers, particularly Martin Luther and others. And as a result, he decided that he needed to withdraw from, uh, from society for a little while and get alone and study his, his, uh, his Bible and, uh, and, and really understand what, what Scripture was talking about. And uh, so he took uh, a job as a tutor for a wealthy man, uh, Sir John Welsh, and uh, he was a tutor for his family. And while he was there, he was, he, he was able to study the Word of God. And the more he was able to, to learn, the more that the, that the truths of the Scripture uh, spoke to him and, and, and he was able to understand things, the more he wanted to get out there and preach. And the more he preached, uh, the more uh, controversy he, uh, he, he, starred, he, he stirred up as, as what he was, was preaching uh, was biblical and against what a lot of um, what was going on in England at the time. He was... Uh, um, as a result um, of this, he, uh, he, became, he had a deeper understanding of God, so much so that he sought out opportunities to preach. Um, and he was uh, also charged with uh, spreading heresy and warned not to uh, speak in public anymore. Regardless, Tyndale continued to seek every opportunity he could uh, to preach the gospel. One day he was having dinner uh, with a Catholic priest who came to, to his master, or to the guy who was working with his house. And, and as they were talking, the, the priest made a comment that uh, we would be better off 
uh, not having the word of God. We'd be better off if we just were able to have the, the Pope's interpretation and, and we were able to live off of that, to which uh, John, um, oh, sorry, William Tind uh, Tyndale got, uh, got a little upset with that, and, and this is, was his response. He said, if God spare my life before very long, I will cause a plowboy to know more of the scriptures than the Pope. At this point, he would set himself on a course of translating the Bible into the English language so that anyone who desires could know the Word of God. Up to this point, the church uh, would, not allow the widespread would not allow widespread access to the English Bible. They put up a firewall around Scripture so that the people would be dependent upon the priests and upon their translations and the religious hierarchy to give them what the Bible, or what they thought the Bible said. Tyndale set out to reverse this dangerous development by empowering believers to read the Word of God on their own. He said, I perceived how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except Scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. Therefore, uh, Tyndale went to London in 1523 in order to seek permission from the Bishop of London uh, to authorize a translation of, uh, of the Bible in the original languages from Greek and English, or from Greek and Hebrew into English. And he was stunned when his request from the, the, the Bishop of London was, was uh, denied. Uh, part of the reason why it was denied is because a year earlier, Martin Luther had published his uh, German translation of the Bible. And, uh, and that's, that caused a stirring and it, uh, in, in, in Germany, and it kind of raised up uh, some, uh, some people. And, and, uh, and as a result, the, the church was losing its power and its influence and its dominance over the lives of the people. And the Bishop of London was concerned that the same type of thing would happen in England if there was an English translation of the Bible. So in uh, 1524, uh, Tyndale left England and he went underground. He went to Europe to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to work on his translation of Scripture on his own in uh, defiance of the authorities at the time. After a, year of intense uh, after a year of intense perseverance, Tyndale is ready to publish his New Testament. So he goes to uh, Cologne, which is a, a city on the Rhine River in Germany, uh, to find a publisher. Of course, if Tyndale is caught, he is, uh, faces capital punishment as well as anybody who has helped to, anybody who has found to uh, help him uh, in the publishing process. As the printing begins in 1525, uh, some of the workers who work in the print shop uh, go out and, and, uh, on a Saturday night and, and are, are, uh, are having a good time and drinking a little bit too much, and they start talking about the project that they're working on in this Bible that's being uh, uh, published. Uh, the authorities were notified and uh, they decided to go and shut down this print shop. Uh, however, Tyndale is, is tipped that they were coming and so he goes in, in, in the heat of the night, uh, one step ahead of the authorities, gets all of his, his manuscripts together and flees from that town uh, in order to continue his work. From there he goes to the city of Worms, uh, which is sympathetic to the Reformation because five years earlier uh, Martin Luther went there and gave his defense of the Reformation and what was happening there. So several factors led to, his, to Tyndall choosing uh, this city, Worms, to be kind of the, the, the headquarters of where his, his, um, his manuscripts were going to be distributed. Uh, first of all, it was located on the Rhine River, so it was easy to, uh, uh, to, to be distributed, to go out um, from there. Secondly, it was a place where they could get uh, content rag paper, where that could be obtained easily. And thirdly, it was a large enough city where Tyndale could be anonymous, where he wouldn't stand out, where he could kind of blend in and do his work. So it was here for the first time in the history of the English-speaking people that there was a New Testament translated in English out of the original Greek. Tyndall was careful to make sure that he accurately reflected the original text. It was set in movable type, 
with some 3,000 copies published. They were hidden in bales of, uh, of cotton and they were shipped uh, into the eastern seaboard of England and Scotland. They were smuggled in uh, to these countries. As you can imagine, the church authorities were very angry and also pretty worried about the work of Tyndale. Bibles being smuggled into England would allow the masses to, uh, to know that, uh, that, that their priests and their religious leaders were lying to them all this time. Uh, so what were they going to do about this? They tried burning them. They tried gathering up as many Bibles as they could to, to burn them. And, uh, but there were just far too many of them. Uh, they also attempted to, uh, to buy um, uh, a bunch of Bibles as well to, to, to do that. But that didn't really work because that just gave more money to, to Tyndall to continue his efforts. Uh, so finally they decided there was only one thing left to do. They were going to have to put Tyndall to death. Uh, he knew his life was in danger, but he took little interest in his own safety. He continued his work as normal, knowing that he was doing, that what he was doing, the, the, um, uh, the work he was doing had eternal significance. He set his mind on trying to get as many uh, Bibles out into the hands of people as possible. He was working on several Old Testament books based on the Hebrew. He had the Pentateuch and uh, the book of Jonah. Uh, he wanted particularly the book of Jonah to be translated because uh, of the, uh, you know, the, the Jonah was sent to the nation of Nineveh, uh, and he said, 40 days, uh, you're going to be destroyed if you don't repent. And so that's what his message was to England. Repent, turn to God, uh, or you will be destroyed. And so he, made, he wanted to make sure that Jonah was, was one of the books that he, uh, that he had translated. Um, Tyndale really didn't care what happened to him because uh, his work was nearing completion. Uh, finally, William Tyndale is apprehended in uh, 1535. He was held in, uh, in prison for 18 months in a castle outside of Brussels in the most of, of wretched conditions. Uh, he was treated uh, basically like, like somebody who had committed murder uh, when all he was done was to, was, was to translate um, the Bible into a readable uh, language. So as he stood before his accusers on trial, uh, there was a long list of charges that were brought against him. Among the offenses, uh, Tyndale asserted that justification is by faith alone, uh, that human tradition cannot bind the conscience, that there is no purgatory, and that neither Mary nor the saints um, offered um, prayers for us, and that we are not to pray to them. All this made uh, Tyndale not only an enemy of the church, but also an enemy of the state. Tyndall refused to deny the truth, and at 1536, he is strangled by a steel chain. He is tied to the stake. He is burned at the stake, and they put enough gunpowder uh, around where he was at that, he, that it blew up, and there was no, nothing left uh, to bury him. But his final prayer, that's the final thing he said as, as he was about to, be, um, uh, about to die. He said, Oh God, open the eyes of the King of England. And that prayer uh, by Tyndale was answered. Within two years, uh, there was the, um, the Coverdale, Miles Coverdale's Bible, which was an English translation that was, was a lot of it was based on uh, Tyndale's translation. Tyndale knew uh, Coverdale. So a lot of Coverdale's Bible was, was based on, on, uh, on a lot of Tyndale's work. That was allowed to be published in, uh, two years later, and it was required to be in every parish in England. And then uh, a couple years after that, uh, even Tyndale's work was, um, was allowed to be published in England. So that's kind of a brief history of, of his life and what he did, but I think there are some lessons that we can learn from, uh, from the life of William Tyndale. I think there's lessons that, that we can, uh, um, can glean from that that would help us as we attempt to live our lives in a way that's going to bring glory and honor to Christ. And so there's three things that I've identified, three things that I want us to look at as we look at what we can learn from the life of, of William Tyndale. Uh, first of all, we need to learn, I think, to, to trust in the sovereignty of God. 
I think it's important that we learn to trust in the sovereignty of God. Understand that God is in control, that he allows things to happen in the right way at the right time. Despite how chaotic and appalling our circumstances may seem, may appear at times, it is crucial that we always remember that God has a plan and that nothing happens by accident. We may not understand when we're in the midst of it what's happening and why it's happening, but the belief that good will eventually transpire as we remain faithful to the Lord is essential in our lives. The book of Esther, uh, chapter four, verse 14, says this, have it on the screen. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God used the work of Tyndale to bring the truth of God's word to millions of people. But in order for this to happen, several successive steps needed to be orchestrated collectively. And for all this to happen in just the right way it was not coincidental. But God was aligning the circumstances for such a time as this. First, somebody had to be raised up that had the ability, the gift of language, which Tyndale did. And also somebody who had a passion to see the Word of God into the hands of common, everyday individuals. Secondly, there had to be the ability to produce and distribute large quantities of literature. One generation before the, the Reformation, Gutenberg's printing press emerged. This invention allowed mass production of printed books that was economically viable to the printer and also to the reader. In Renaissance Europe, the arrival of mechanical movable type, uh, this era introduced mass communication, which predominantly altered the structure of society from that point forward. The relatively unstructured circulation of information, including revolutionary ideas, it transited borders. It captured the masses uh, in the Reformation and threatened the power of the political and religious authorities. The result was a sharp increase in literacy, which broke the monopoly of the literate elite on education and learning, and it bolstered the emerging middle class. The use of movable type was a marked improvement over the handwritten manuscripts that took months uh, to produce, it was, uh, which was the existing uh, method of book production in Europe. And it also revolutionized European bookmaking. Gutenberg's printing technology spread rapidly throughout uh, Europe and later throughout the world. There's a third thing that, uh, uh, that, was, that was happening during the time that, 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 uh, that aided this, this movement. And third was there was an attitude of change among the, among the, uh, the time of the reformers, but among the people uh, who were attending church, who were involved in everyday society, everyday life. This gave a platform to Reformation thinkers like Martin Luther and William Tyndale who were outraged by the exploitation that they were seeing, the corruption of the religious um, authorities at that time. Specifically for Tyndale, he contended that scripture was clear enough to be understood without church leadership imposing its twisted man-made interpretations on it and their traditions. So clearly, God's sovereignty was evident in the time of the reformers, but it didn't start or finish with them. God was at work long before the reformers and he's continuing to work in our day as well. The Bible records many instances where the Lord is clearly working with a uh, purpose and a plan. In the, verses we just, in the verse we just looked at in Esther, uh, that whole situation uh, was about uh, God providentially uh, putting people in place at the right time. As uh, uh, the king of Persia at the time was, was, uh, uh, um, was upset with uh, his, his queen, and so he sent out a uh, summons in the land to bring all the beautiful young ladies, and he was going to pick a new queen. 
And, uh, and Esther, out of all the, the women of the land, she was the one that was chosen. He, she found favor in the eyes of the king. And uh, there were some enemies of the Jews at the time that wanted to annihilate um, all the Jews. And so they were forming a, a plot. They were forming a plan to do that. Um, and so uh, Esther's uh, cousin, who was kind of like a father figure to her because he raised her when her, her parents died when she was very young, uh, he went to Esther and he, and he said this to her, you know, you, you've been chosen to be the queen for such a time as this. You, it's up to you to rise up, to, to, uh, to do, to God has placed you in this position in order to save your people. Don't think you're going to escape judgment because, uh, because you've got a high lofty position, uh, because you are, are one of us. And so uh, she was kind of fearful of the king because you weren't allowed to go and see the king without permission. And so, but bravely and courageously she went forward and, uh, and, and she found favor with the king. And as a result of Esther's faithfulness, as a result of God placing her at the right place at the right time, uh, the Jewish people were spared. And, uh, and they were able to overcome the, the enemies who wanted to annihilate the Jewish people at that time. And it was just a, a, a look back at, at a faithful time that God was faithful to his people. Galatians chapter 4 also gives an indication of, uh, of, of God working in ways that we don't necessarily see or understand, but in ways that, that work out for His purpose and His plan. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now think about Jesus came into the world, and, and He came... 500 to 1,000 years after the Old Testament prophecies. Think about that. There's a long time between the time when God promised a Messiah would come and the birth of Jesus. There was quite a significant amount of period of time. What was happening during that period of time? A lot of things happened that set the stage for Christ to come at the right time and for the gospel to be spread in ways that it might not have been able to be spread in generations before. Think about this. At the time of Jesus, there was, basically, there was a predominantly universal peace with secured borders around the world. Um, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that there, there was one nation that would rise up and they would be in power for a while, then another nation would challenge them and they would rise up and be in power for a while. And, and one after another after another, they would rise and fall, rise and fall. It wasn't until the Roman Empire came that there was some stability within the, the, the borders and, and nations were able to choose and, and, and be where they were at. There was political and economic stability where there was, where there was none elsewhere in history. Also, uh, with Rome came an international highway system. They built an international highway system. They put together a postal system. Uh, there was a universal common language. Greek was now the common language, even though uh, different nations had their own um, dialect and their own uh, language here and there. Uh, the, the language of commerce, the language where business was done, was Greek. It was a common language uh, to everyone, and that was uh, significant in having a language that everybody could understand as the gospel was spread. Also, there was cultural similarities so that the gospel could be preached and understood as no time before. There's also a spiritual vacuum developing from the old religions fading away um, when there was no adequate replacement to come. And then there was identity crisis for the Jews over who and what Israel was because they did not have their own nation. They were under the, 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 the rule of other uh, countries and other uh, people at the time. And so there, there were uh, other sects and other um, groups that were saying different things about well, who, we, who are we? You know, who does God say we are? Uh, this gave rise to uh, the ultimate Messiah coming and bringing the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. 
This was a time uh, that was the most advantageous for the spread of the gospel, like no other time before. In fact, most of the New Testament that we have are what? They're letters. Letters written from one individual to a church or from one individual to another individual um, in order to, um, to continue the, the spread of the gospel, in order to encourage and build up other churches from one area of, 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 uh, of the world to, to, the, uh, to another, which could not have happened or had, would have been much more difficult at another time. So God knew what he was doing when he sent Jesus at just the right time and just the right place where the fullness of time had come. And, uh, and God still works in our, in our lives today. And uh, maybe God has placed you in a position. Maybe God has placed you somewhere where you are just right there for just that right time. Maybe there's somebody that you work with. Maybe there's somebody in your neighborhood. Maybe there's somebody that, uh, that you have built a relationship with that, uh, that you've been ministering to, that you've been witnessing to. Maybe there's somebody that, will, um, that you have impact in their life that nobody else would, that nobody else could. Maybe you're placed there at just that right time. Uh, God is still putting people and, 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 uh, and working without coincidence. And, uh, and we need to look at how is God going to use me? How can he use me? How can I make myself available for him to use me at just this right place at just this right time? So the first thing we need to do is we need to trust in God's sovereignty. But secondly, we want to look at, at trusting in God's word. We must examine the impact of scripture in the life of the believer. Tyndale poses the question as to who is your ultimate authority to whom are you willing to submit? This is what he said. This is a quote. We do not wish to abolish teaching and make every man his own master, but if the curates will not teach the gospel, the layman must have the scripture and read it for himself, taking God for his teacher. For William Tyndale, God's word was to be the supreme authority in the life of the believer. For many, the pope was the, definite, or the definitive influence for all matters of religion, morality, and theology. However, the Pope often made decisions that affected people based on political or nationalistic objectives. Whatever would result in power or wealth for the church would typically receive the favorable pronouncement. Very little consideration was given to the Word of God. Out of this backdrop, Tyndale's life work would focus on the importance of bringing scripture into the lives of the masses. The people were desperately in need of spiritual nourishment. Do you know who taught the eagles to find their prey? Well, that same God teaches his hungry children to find their father in his word. In the time where Tyndale lived, there was, like I said before, great spiritual darkness. People were looking for something, people were looking for answers. And uh, they, were, they had difficulty finding it because there was no Bible, there was no scripture in, their, in a way that they could understand. As a result of the lack of understanding and familiarity, the structure of the church was erroneous. Priests held an excessive amount of power, which was contrary to the teachings of scripture. The New Testament clearly communicates that there is not a separate class of super spiritual saints or priests that rests, um, and then the rest of us are to uh, pray to them or confess our sins to them. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, God addresses this issue uh, through, his, um, through his apostle. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10.
It says, uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, a people for his own possession, that you may uh, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Old Testament priests were chosen by God for a specific purpose at a specific time. They were not self-appointed, but they were chosen by God to serve with their lives by offering up the sacrifices needed for God's people. The priesthood serves as a picture or a type of the coming ministry of Jesus Christ. A picture that was no longer needed once Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was completed. When the temple veil that covered the doorway of the Holy of Holies was torn into at the time of Christ's death, God was indicating that the Old Testament priesthood was no longer necessary. Now people could come directly to God through, this, through the great high priest, the one and only high priest, Jesus Christ. There are now no earthly meditators, mediators, there are no, I'm sorry, now there are no earthly mediators between God and man as existed in the Old Testament priesthood. We can come before God directly. Christ is our high priest, and he has made the once for all sacrifice for sin. And there is no more sacrifice that needs to be made or that can be made. But as the priests once offered other kinds of sacrifices in the temple, so it is clear from 1 Peter chapter 2 that God has chosen all Christians to offer up spiritual sacrifices that were acceptable to Christ, or acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And there are two ways that we serve as priests. So if we are called, we are all ministers for God, and we serve this, um, this way as priests in two, two very distinct um, categories. First of all, um, that believers are privileged. It is a privilege to be called, to be chosen, to be part of God's uh, elect. To be chosen by God to be a priest was a privilege, or is a privilege for all believers. All believers have been chosen by God as a chosen generation, as a holy, special people to God. In the Old Testament tabernacle in the temple, uh, there were places where only the priest could go. Into the Holy of Holies, behind a thick veil, that only once a year on the Day of Atonement when he made a sin offering on behalf of the people. But because of Jesus' death upon the cross of Calvary, all believers now have direct access to the throne of God through Christ Jesus. What a privilege to be able to access the very throne of God directly and not have to go through another mediator. When Christ returns, believers will see God face to face what a privilege, especially for us who were once not a people, who were once separated from God, we were without hope, and we're destined for destruction because of our sin. But now we have been chosen and called out for Him. But there's a second aspect of believers serving as a priest, is that we are chosen for a purpose, and that is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, to proclaim the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His miraculous light. Thus, by both life and by word, our purpose is to serve God. As the believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so God has called us to serve Him from our hearts by first of all offering our lives as living sacrifices. One day we will be serving God in eternity, but not in any temple, for the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. 
as the Old Testament priesthood was to be free of defilement, as symbolized by being ceremoniously clean, so has Christ made us holy and clean before the Father. He calls on us to live lives that we might also be a holy priesthood. The priesthood that was evident in the time of William Tyndale and the Reformers was a priesthood that had been corrupted, a priesthood that was, was not unlike any other secular organization. Uh, but God, as we see in 2 Peter and other passages in Hebrews and Revelations, God has called us out to be a, uh, a holy people, one that would uh, come before the Lord and be mediators for others who, are no longer, who do not have that relationship with God, as we can be ambassadors and representatives for God in this world. And the third um, aspect that we can learn from Tyndale's life, and that's we can trust in the cause of Christ. Unfortunately, much of what we call Christianity results in seeking to make our life in this world as comfortable and with as much ease as possible. William Tyndale saw the discrepancies of his time, and he vowed to use his gifts and talents to make a difference for the Lord and spread the gospel to a lost and dying world. He said, Christ is with us until the world's end. Let his little flock be bold, therefore. Living a life of comfort and ease was not a consideration for Tyndale, despite the fact that he had opportunities that others at that time did not. He was very intelligent and was among one of the most educated men in the world. He could have had a secure career in the university setting, uh, but his convictions demanded more from his life. He knew that in order for him to accomplish what God wanted for his life, he needed to be fearless. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6 talks about uh, uh, the Israelites going in to the promised land, and God gives them this encouragement. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, the Canaanites who occupy the land. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. God's assurance of being with the Israelites as he is about to lead them into the, the land that has been promised to them years before is the same as uh, for us as we act on God's leading. They were to be courageous because God promised that he would lead them, and God never fails on his promises. Throughout William Tyndall's life, we find example after example of how to be courageous in the midst of difficulties as he faced all sorts of evil. Regardless of the opposition, he expressed confidence in the Lord. For, it, for if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us? Be bishops, cardinals, popes, or whosoever names they will be. Think about it. His enemy was not people of the world, were not kings, or uh, he, he wouldn't, we'll talk about in a minute how he made the king mad, but, but his enemy, his main enemies, his main people that were coming against Tyndale were people of the church, people who he should have been working with, uh, but yet they were the ones that were his biggest um, detractors. Tyndale failed to back down from the truth of God's word and was even willing to face death to fulfill God's promise or God's purpose. We must be convinced that for the cause of Christ, some things are worth dying for. One last verse I want us to look at. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this verse kind of sums up for me as, as studying the life of Tyndale. A little bit about his, 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 uh, his motives and what he was about. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The adjectives uh, in this verse, I think, accurately describe uh, some of the accomplishments of William Tyndale. First of all, he was steadfast. Um, he was never content. He was a continual learner. He continued to, to improve. After his first edition of his New Testament came out, he would print two other editions and making over 4,000 improvements to his New Testament as he learned better the Greek language, as he learned better uh, how to translate that into English. His work was very influential to generations beyond him, um, beyond his life, as approximately 90% of the King James uh, Bible, which was printed in 1611, became, and became, would, would later become the standard English edition for generations. Uh, about 90% of that Bible was based on Tyndale's work and what he had done. Um, secondly, he was immovable. Tyndale knew the Word of God and would not allow himself to compromise regardless of whatever consequences may occur. In 1530, he wrote The Practice of the Prelates. And in this treaty, he, uh, treatise, he opposed Henry VIII's um, planned annulment uh, to his marriage to Catherine of Aragon in favor of Anne Boylan on the grounds that it was unscriptural. He argued uh, that it was a plot by Cardinal um, Woolsey to get Henry entangled in the papal courts of Pope Clement VII. As a result, the king's wrath was now aimed at Tyndale. Henry asked uh, Emperor Charles V to have uh, the writer apprehended and returned to England. So until his capture, uh, Tyndale lived as a fugitive throughout Europe of the King of England. But it didn't deter him. He continued to speak what was right. Uh, he was immovable because he knew his grounds was on Scripture. Grounds was on the Word of God. He knew that, that if he were to slight off of that, that he would be in the wrong. And he had to answer to God, not to the king or to the pope or to anybody else. And then finally, we see here in this passage that, uh, that he was knowing that, uh, that, the, that the work that he was doing for the Lord does not go in vain. Tyndale abounded in the work of the Lord. He realized that, uh, that we are created to serve God with everything we have. Tyndale said that there is no work better than to please God to pour water, to wash dishes, to be a cobbler or an apostle, all are one. To wash dishes and to preach are all one, as touching the deed to please God. Tyndall used his gifts as a linguist and a passion for bringing God's word to all people in their language. He used those things to serve the Lord. You may not be a scholar, a pastor, or an evangelist, uh, but you do have talents and passions that can be used for the Lord. Additionally, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you have been given spiritual gifts that are to be used to make disciples and to reach others with the gospel of Christ. Despite setbacks, obstacles, and even persecution, are you willing to use all that you have to make a difference in this world for Christ? When you get discouraged, remember William Tyndale, how God used him to help produce the English Bibles that we have today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the devoted men and women that you have, that have preceded us, Lord, that have set the stage for us to receive the wonderful gospel that you set before us. 
Help us to learn from their example and encourage us to live out our faith as well so that we might be a blessing to others who would seek to know you as their Lord and Savior. For those of us that you have chosen, our lives belong to you. Lord, I pray that you would utilize us as you wish for the advancement of your kingdom. May we trust in your sovereignty, your inspired word, and the great cause of Christ as we live each and every day for you. In Jesus' name, amen.